You guys hear me okay? Well, hey church, it's good to be together today. Welcome everyone uh, who's tuning in at home. Welcome everyone who's here. It's just a blessing that we're able to uh, fellowship and come together as our homes and uh, families here at the church to understand God's word. Uh, This morning we're going to be continuing in the book of Hebrews. And uh, we've officially made it to chapter 8. And so if you've been tracking with us from the beginning, congratulations. You've made it two-thirds of the way now. You can give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, we're, we're officially past halfway. And before we jump into Hebrews, I just want to give us a few reminders about this book. Uh, a couple things. Remember that this book was written about... 60 years after Christ's resurrection. So the timeline on this is it's 60 years after Christ had returned to be with the Father. And another thing that's important to remember about this book is that it was written to young Jewish Christians, a young Jewish church that was under an incredible amount of persecution. And it's very safe to assume that as this author is writing to them to encourage them to stand firm, that in this church of Jewish Christians, just like any church, that it wasn't 100% believers. It was a mixture of believers and unbelievers because God in a church is always calling people to the church, to himself, and people are being saved through his work in the church. And so as he's speaking, he's hoping not only that those that were Christians would stand firm and mature in Christ like we've talked about, but he's also hoping that those in the church that didn't know Christ would come to receive Christ. And and his whole point is just to encourage this whole church that I know you're going through suffering, I know you're going through hard times, but stand firm in Jesus. And this morning we're going to see that the author is explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they knew in the past because God has made a new covenant through the person of Christ that is better than the old. But the thing is, many of them are wanting to hold on to the old. They didn't want to let go of it. You know why? I can relate because the old is good. You know how the old works. You can count on it. Count on it. I have uh, this morning uh, my cell phone that I first had when I was married. All right. When we first got married, it's got a cool Sprint logo on it. Uh, That doesn't exist anymore. It's got this nice flip. I don't know if you remember T9. Uh, I loved this phone. I loved this phone. And when I got married, I was an Android PC person and my wife was an iPhone Mac person. And, uh, and when it finally came time, when I didn't want to let go of this phone because I loved it, um, but when it started cracking, when it started getting out of date, I finally decided, all right, I'll give it a try and I'll try out the iPhone. And it wasn't too long before you know it that then I was trying out a Mac. And my wife loves to make fun of me because now I'm a Mac evangelist and I love my Mac products, <laughs> right? And she loves to make fun of me because she remembers when I went from this phone to my iPhone, I don't remember what version it was, but... When I went to the iPhone that I I was complaining and I was frustrated and I would go to her and have her try to help me how to figure out what to do on my phone or my computer. You know why? Because I wanted to go back to what I knew. Are Are we not like the Israelites? They wanted to go back to what they knew, to what worked, and it was hard to switch over to the new. And so that may be a bad example because I may have isolated some of you guys this morning. Some of you guys are still Android people out there. And uh, just a news drop for you, the iPhone 12 just came out. So if you want to make all of us iPhone users' lives easier and turn our text blue, we'd appreciate that. <laughs> Go ahead and grab the new iPhone. That'd be, that'd be great for all of us that, that are on the iPhone Mac side. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, to not offend all you Android users out there, what about you this morning? 
I want to ask us, has there ever been a time in your life when you thought, just like me, that you had the best thing ever, but then you realized that there was something better? Maybe it was your coffee maker. Maybe it was your blender. Maybe it was your boyfriend. I don't know. I don't know what it was, right? But you thought you had the best thing ever, and then you met someone else or something else, and you're like, wow, this thing is revolutionary. This thing has totally changed our lives. I would never want to go back to that old thing or that old relationship. Well, that, we've all had those times when we didn't think that things could get any better in life, and then all of a sudden, they do. They do get better. And that's what, exactly what this author is talking about today. He's going to explain that Jesus fulfills and replaces the old covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel. And he's going to remind them of God's promise throughout the Old Testament to them of the Messiah. And so as we go through it, you're going to get hopefully a little better understanding of the covenants. We're not going to go in depth uh, but we're going to understand some of the promises and the covenants that God has made throughout the ages to his people and how he's grafted us, those that are not Jewish, uh, the Gentiles, he's grafted us into those promises and we receive those blessings now as well through the person of Christ. And we're really going to see how God wants us to be Christ-sufficient in our life and not self-sufficient. Our tendency is to want to be self-sufficient and rely on ourselves, but God wants us as believers, to turn to him and be Christ-sufficient. So if you guys would, before we open God's word, would you just turn with me and pray now that the Holy Spirit would speak to us and guide us this morning as we open his word. Lord, we thank you for your written word and this opportunity to study it right now. Father, I thank you for the many godly men and women whose ministry my words reflect today. Lord, help us to hear from you today. Even as I'm excited to preach these words, I just pause now, Lord. And I ask that you would settle my heart, that you would settle our hearts, that you would remove distractions. And Jesus, I pray that we would hear from you today. We acknowledge and we thank you that your spirit is around us and that it's living inside of us. And Jesus, it's in your name that we ask for your help to understand your word and you would soften our hearts to yours. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, if you're grabbing a Bible, it's towards the very back. It's not too hard to find. Just start flipping through the back pages and you'll, you'll find it there. And uh, we'll also have the verses on the screen behind me. And as you're doing that, I just want to bridge and recap where we've been. Remember in the last couple of sermons, we've been talking about in chapter 6, how the author wanted to encourage this church to mature in Christ, And he was pointing to them that Christ is sufficient for them in all things. And two weeks ago we were in chapter 7. And just some highlights of the verses because this all fits together. The verses immediately preceding these verses said that, that Jesus was given a better priesthood than any other man. You remember Melchizedek. And we learned that Jesus was given a better priesthood than any other priest. Even Melchizedek. Because he's the guarantor of a new covenant. 
And he's able to save us to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, eternally. He stands between God and man and sacrifices no longer need to be made over and over because he was a sacrifice once and for all, for all of our sins. And so that's immediately where we take context. And what I want to do is I want to read the first half of this chapter right now, 8 verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to go back and kind of unpack those verse by verse, and then we'll get into the second half. So you can follow along with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So the first thing that we see in the beginning of chapter 8 is that Jesus is the better priest who ministers in the true tabernacle. He continues on to explain that Jesus is the better priest. He's better than anyone ever before that came to represent God, man to God. And he ministers not on earth, but he ministers in the true tabernacle, in the true tent in heaven. So in verse 1, one of the things that you'll notice if you go to that scripture is it, it says that this our high priest has been seated. And that's really important for us to remember, and that's repeated throughout this book. It's repeated in other books of the Bible that Christ is seated because it's a symbol, it's a reminder that Jesus is Christ's work for our sin. His sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice for our sin has been completed. There's nothing else needed. We don't need to do anything else to make ourselves right with God. Sacrifices don't need to be made over and over and over to point anywhere because all those sacrifices were always pointing to faith in God through Jesus. And Jesus has now sacrificed himself for our behalf. And so one of the reasons he's a better priest is because his work is finished. There was no place to sit in the tent, in the tabernacle. Remember, God gave instructions in Exodus 25 through 40 as God's people left Egypt on how to set up the tent, the tabernacle where they would worship God. And there was no place to sit for the priest there. It was constant work. The only thing that was even remotely close to a seat was called the mercy seat. But it wasn't a seat at all. It was the covering to the Ark of the Covenant, the point in which God came and met man. It was a place where there was no rest because there was work pointing to the day when one day Jesus would come and complete the work on our behalf. And so in verse 1, the most important thing to see there is that this work has been done, and that's what makes Jesus better. And then in the second verse, it says that he's ministering in the holy places. 
Jesus is a better priest because he's ministering in the real thing in heaven itself. That tabernacle was a place where heaven met earth, but priests ministered on earth and Jesus' ministry is perfection. It's from heaven itself. Their tent was a copy of the real thing, of the permanent, true tent in heaven. And we're gonna read in a little bit about how it was just a shadow, it was a copy, but it's, it's a replica of what's in heaven. As I was reading this, I started thinking about baseball. Growing up, we were a baseball family. Sundays was for watching the Cowboys, but the rest of the week was for playing baseball. And that's just how my dad grew up and that's how I grew up. And so I played a lot of little league. And, and I remember being in T-ball, right? And I remember like feeling like this is just too easy, right? But if you've, if you've never played baseball, what happens when you're really little is the games start off on a tee. And you just put the ball right on the tee and you're, you're hoping to develop uh, eye contact, uh, hand-eye contact, right? And that's how you start off. But quickly, you move to pitching. You're never meant to stay at T-ball. You don't see major leaguers just put a tee out there. You move up to pitching. That's where the game's meant to go. And, and that's, what, that's, that's a perfect illustration. It was never meant to stay in this tabernacle. One day, we'll be forever with God in heaven worshiping him. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And he's saying, you're meant for more than T-ball. These guys were playing at Ron Hell Field and God had plans for them that went way beyond Yankee Stadium, right? And so he's, he's a better priest because of where he ministers. And then in verse three, it's important to see that it says he had something to offer. All the priests would offer sacrifices that were either brought to him or they, that them or they had prepared. But Jesus is a better priest because he had something to offer. And what is it that Jesus had to offer? His very life. God didn't give anything else, but Jesus gave his very life for our behalf. All the sacrifice in the past pointed to Jesus, that he would be the atonement for our sins. It was always God's plan to send his son to die for us, to show his love for us. You know, you see our hearts are wired by God to understand our need for his sacrificial love and to give that love for others. We all have a hole in us that can only be filled by the love of Jesus Christ. That's why when we watch movies, they're all testament to God, when you watch Rogue One at the end and you see the sacrifice that they made or you watch Braveheart or you watch Saving Private Ryan, it's why something lights up inside of us because our hearts were wired by God to know that we were meant for this loving relationship with him that could only be, be bridged by the sacrifice of God himself making us close to him. God's people, and catch this church, God's people were always called to repentance and atonement for their sin. Nothing changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. They were always called to repentance and atonement for sin by faith in God. Their faith wasn't supposed to be in the sacrifice. Their faith was in pleasing God through the sacrifice. But their faith was always what they were saved by, faith in God. And those sacrifices were just the means by which that was carried out. But you see, what the author is telling them 60 years after Christ came is that Christ has replaced all those sacrifices. You don't have to make those sacrifices anymore is what he's telling them because Christ was this better priest who made an offering once and for all who's ministering now in heaven who gave his very life. And so let's read verse six. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enabled and acted on better promises. That's the entire message of the book of Hebrews right there. Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment to the need in our broken hearts. He's a fulfillment to where all these sacrifices were pointing. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Messiah, Jesus coming. So that's our second point. Jesus mediates a better covenant. Jesus mediates a better covenant on their behalf and on our behalf. I want to recap for you briefly a little bit of Jewish history. Remember that in Genesis 12, God called out for himself a people through the person of Abram. And he renamed Abram, Abraham. And he said, I'm going to bless the world through you, which would one day be Jesus. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And as time went on, he reaffirmed that covenant with Abraham's ancestors. But eventually God's people were led into Egypt and they began to be persecuted. And God raised up Moses to set his people free. And again, God made a promise and a covenant with Moses. But the difference was this first covenant with Abram was an unconditional covenant. He said, I am going to bless you for my name's sake. But when they exited Egypt, he told Moses and he told the people and he gave them the Ten Commandments, I will bless you and you will prosper if you will trust in me, if you will obey me and you will trust in me. But what happened was the people lost their eyes from God and they became selfish and they turned from him. And so generation after generation, he sent prophets to them, which we hold today, the writings of those prophets, to tell them, turn back to me. And all the sacrifices from Abram to Isaac to Jesus himself were pointing, were pointing that atonement can only be made through God himself, through the shedding of the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the sacrifices, I'm going to repeat this again, the sacrifices and their religious practice were never what saved them. It was always saved through faith in God. It was all a holding pattern pointing to Christ. So let's continue and read about how Christ has fulfilled all of this. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There was no fault with God in the old covenant, but he found fault with his people because they had turned from him. And remember, this is a direct quote from Jeremiah that he's quoting now, 600 years prior. This is what God had told his people because they had turned from him. But he's quoting it now to them 60 years after Christ has gone back to the Father. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. God was telling them there needs to be a new covenant. And so what's this new covenant like? He's quoting from Jeremiah, pointing to this new covenant coming one day. Here in verse 10, he's quoting from it 
in this time, it was written 600 years before through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says in verse 10, quoting Jeremiah, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Where before was this covenant written? It was, it was written on tablets of stone. But now the covenant was written on their very hearts is where he says it's going to be written. What was external becomes internal. And God says that he's going to have a close relationship with his people. Let's continue on in verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. He's saying there's going to be better access. Everyone is going to know me. That when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, what changed from the old to the new was that the Holy Spirit no longer dwelled in the temple, but the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And one day we know that everyone who God has called to himself and receives the name of Jesus Christ will know him in the millennial kingdom in the future in heaven. And he's saying, I'm going to bring this about through the person of Christ. Verse 12, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. We're going to see this in a couple weeks again in chapter 10. And this is quoted in the book of Romans where he says, I will remember their sins no more. He's offering a better covering. The sacrifice of Jesus complete, com offered complete forgiveness for sins. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You can look up obsolete in the dictionary. It means no more, no longer needed, gone. What he's saying to them, and remember, they had practiced for thousands of years these sacrifices, being told that one day a Messiah would come as a sacrifice. And he's telling them, let that old religious system go. It's dead. It's gone. And it was the most merciful thing he could preach because what was about to happen about 10 years later was the temple itself where they were practicing these sacrifices was about to be destroyed. And I don't think it's ironic or, or speculative or, or in any way that that happened, exactly why it did, when it did. I believe that God brought that about, the destruction of their temple, to remind them this is done. This is done. It was always meant to point to Christ. And Christ has come. Galatians 2.20 tells us this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, that promise of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, and I hope you've been able to understand a little bit better this morning how the Bible fits together. I know very few of us are Jewish. So cool to have those roots, and that's awesome. I know so few of us are. But the beautiful thing to us here today that we're, that we're not Jewish, that we're not God's original children, 
that God's made a way, he's grafted us in. He wants the world to come to himself and he wants all the peoples of the world to know him. And he, he used this people to make his name great so that, that I and you and even those that share that ancestry could one day receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he's saying, we live in Christ. We should not find our sufficiency from our lives, from our obedience, from our good deeds, from our actions. We can only find our means to hope through the sufficiency of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Imagine I was going to give somebody a phone this morning from, for coming to church. Would you rather I give you a brand new iPhone 12 or my old school phone here from Sprint with the flip on it right here, right? I don't think too many of you would be excited to get this old phone. But if I was offering an iPhone 12, you'd be like, bonus, awesome. I came for God, but I got a phone, cool, right? But nobody's going to want this. this. This only has some sort of sentimental value to me. Obviously, I'm still holding on to it, right? But... The old has gone. The old person that you were before knowing God, that person's gone. Jesus Christ lives in you today now. And if you've never received him, if you've never called out to him, he wants you to call out to him today. He wants to live inside of you. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 connects all of this this way. Let me read this last verse to you. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. This passage is telling us today that there is a new covenant that Jesus is better than anything that's come before. The old is gone and the new has come. You know, I was, I was given a, a lawnmower several years back uh, by a friend that was one of those self-push lawnmowers. And, and, and this lawnmower, you know, all I need to do is hold on to it and it just goes. That's what this promise is saying in your life, if you want life, if you want hope, even after you received Christ, you can never let go of him. That old is gone. You got to hold on to the new. You got to turn. You got to hold on to the new. And Jesus is going to take you where you need to go. And I know this morning that many of us came in this morning for one reason or another, discouraged or distracted or believing some sort of lie about the world or about God or about ourselves that just simply isn't true. And maybe he's battling with emptiness. And this promise of this passage is to say that we will never find our significance apart from God. There's no ambition. There's no approval of anyone else. There's nothing we can get. There's nothing we can have that will ever satisfy us, only God. And so what do we need to do? We need to look up and we need to hold 
on to God. Now you may be saying right now, I just said, look up. How is it that if I look up that I can walk? If I'm looking up every day, how is it that I can go through life? Because we need to look up and we need to walk out our salvation. We need to walk towards Christ. And that's the point. God wants us to look up every day because we don't understand what's coming ahead. We are not God. We didn't make us. We didn't make the world around us. We don't make our own purpose. God says in his word that he made you for his purpose, that he's made this world. And so we need to head out here with Jesus looking up to Jesus and he will illuminate our path and he will hold us by the hand. And so I really don't know church, what it is you were carrying when you came in today. But I know this world is a broken place and it's not an easy journey. But we've come together here and we have God's word to point the direction. We have prayer to cry out to him and we have each other to point each other to Christ. And so let's go and let's do that today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. There is none like you. We know there are so many things that compete for our heart. And in this, this moment, in a bit, as we begin to sing to you again, God, I pray that you would just renew our heart of worship towards you. That whatever has our eyes and our heart distracted or bitter, God, that you would just breathe life into us. And we ask for you to do it because you know, we know you're the only one who can. We ask that you would just give us a heart of worship for you to look up and to walk towards you in this new covenant of grace in the gospel. We pray all these things. And everyone at Grace said, amen. It's been great to be with you today, church. Great to be with you at home. Let's continue to worship.